everyone. Welcome back to Free Kick, the Fantasy W podcast. I am today joined by Liam and Jono as we go through our strategy episode. How's it going, guys? Very, very good. Thank you, Mel. I uh, I really do enjoy talking the grand theories and strategies of fantasy, much like I do talk about any fantasy topic. But this one is really interesting because AFLW and the expansion season throws up many major strategic quandaries, and it's going to be a fascinating chat today. How about you, Jono? I heard you had a disappointing end to the AFLM fantasy yeah, yeah. Look, thank God for AFLW fantasy starting in what two, three days. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a very necessary change of pace. Uh, I've just fallen in the final round, dropped out of the top hundred for the AFL men's fantasy game. So, just, just missed out on a hat there. And I think I did the, I did the count back. If I hadn't traded in the final round, I, I would have kept my hat. So the only reason I missed out there is, is my own, my own actions. No one else to blame. Always a rough feeling. Does that mean you're going to advocate holding trades throughout the season for FLW on the back of uh, <laughs> an unfortunate final round? Is that your new strategy? <laughs> Look, if I end up in you know that 90th spot come come round nine of this AFLW season, but no, I'm, I'm excited to get stuck into it. I think there's some some very different uh, strategies that you need for the the women's game than the men's. So this will be this will be a fun one. So. What we're going to do in this episode, a little bit different, is we're going to run through some of the strategic philosophies that um, we've pulled together from uh, our experience last season doing AFLW fantasy uh, and also some reading online and pulling from similar concepts from other fantasy sports. So we've got four main pillars here. Let's kick it off with how the shorter season impacts our fantasy game. John, do you want to run us through your little bit of analysis here? The first thing I suppose that we noticed last season was that it's so much shorter a season. So you've only got the 10 rounds and it's barely enough time to complete your team. You do have the extra trade each week, so you have three trades in total, but it makes it very, very challenging to try and get to a completed side. So I've done a little bit of a breakdown here just into how you can use your trades because you'll have 30 across the season. If you want to get to a completed side, it's very tight. Mm. First thing is starting off the season, your first two rounds, you've got to be waiting for players to you know, make some cash. And all we're going to be doing with our, our first two rounds of trade is making those corrections. What we think our starting side should have been had we known what these first two rounds were looking like. <laughs> round two was a big round of corrections for me last season. <laughs> there was quite a few I needed to make. Yeah, yeah. Dropping players like Ash Brazel who weren't even playing. And, and a quick reminder for anyone who's doing this, Ash Brazel is not going to be playing round one. Please, please don't make the same mistake that we did. I have seen <laughs> she has an ownership percentage above one. Yeah, it's actually seriously high. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how we fix that. We'll, we'll have to post something. But look, there's six trades in the first two rounds. Those are going to be on corrections, which leaves us with 24 trades. Across the season... I think the minimum that you're going to cop is something like six injuries, suspensions, or dropped players that you need to trade to make sure that you're fielding a full team. Mm. Yeah, last season we saw a lot because of COVID and the HNS protocols that go around that. But I think even more so coming into season seven, while there's less COVID going around, it's kind of swept through all of our teams. It's going to be the back to back and the short the short break in between, and also kind of having a VFLW season in between. That means that these players are probably going to be a little bit more tired, a little bit more prone to injury. So I can see injuries being a big disruptor that we can't really predict. Yeah, yeah, and that that's on top of the fact that you're going to have these really young midfields where we've got a lot of what was it 122 players coming up that weren't part of it last season. 
there's a huge number and we're going to be trialing out new midfields we're going to be rotating new people through our teams and it's i'm not sure if we're going to get the job security that we want so i think you need at least six it's probably going to be more and yeah after those six corrections and just uh, just putting away six for injury suspension non-selections if you want to do one up one down you only have 18 trades left which means that's only getting nine players up which means at very minimum you need to be looking at your side with at least seven players knowing that they're going to be there at the end of the season and that's that's being generous to yourself it's probably going to be at least eight potentially up to ten. Ten players in your side on field right now that are going to be there all season just because they stay in your side doesn't necessarily mean that they need to end up at the top of their line so we saw from someone like Tara Bahana last year, she stayed in my side all the way through to round 10 because she could still hit consistent 50s, which meant she was in the top 12 to 13 forwards, which meant that I had five of that top 12, which was more than enough. And it meant that I was able to prioritize upgrading at the top end of my lines and just being happy with that to just kind of sit there at the bottom of my line. Yeah, well, this actually raises the question then. Is it reasonable to expect that you're going to be able to complete your team by the end of the season. And when you say complete your team, you mean have a team full of essentially premium players that you want if you could have a, a team with unlimited money. Yeah, I, I don't think it's realistic to have a team that necessarily is the top five in every line, but to have one where you know, you're at least in the ballpark. You, you've got a player who is, is no fantasy slouch, you're not playing a rookie, you're playing someone that you've chosen to have on your side because... They're a fantasy scorer. I think the key thing here is with the advent of all, like four, let's say four new midfields and four new forward lines and four new defense lines, and the different combinations that are going to be thrown up this year means the job security is going to be very, very low. So as much as we'd really love to be able to bank on rookies, and I think there are some rookies that will have great job securities, and then there's going to be others that have none, you're going to have more forced trades than in previous years that's going to throw up a lot of issues when it comes to having a completed side. To me, even though season six was the first season of AFLW Fantasy and my real introduction to the sport and fantasy sports, season seven is more of a experiment to me because we've got so many new players and new teams. I think to me, it's a lot about giving it my best crack to complete my team, but not really knowing what that might look like until later in the season because there are so many, so many new faces, so that in season eight, I can kind of know almost from the get-go what my completed team might look like and work towards that. Hmm. I, I think to start the season, I'm going to be aiming to complete my side. I think it's possible with a little bit of luck. The first two rounds are just corrections, but after that, we know the prices are going to be moving very, very quickly this season. I think it's possible hmm. from, from round three onwards to be doing one up, one down, and then you've got one spare trade to deal with whatever might fall our way. That means by round 10, you'll have made eight upgrades, which means if you start with eight players you're willing to keep, you've got a full team. That's what I'm aiming for. That's that's my plan at the very least. Not a lot of room for error, but I'm glad that you're optimistic. That's, that's all I can be. <laughs> I just think that there's too much role change within the season to know that those eight upgrades between you know, rounds three and round six are going to be actual proper upgrades. Oh, I, I don't think you need to know. This is an exercise that I do in the, the AFL men's fantasy game. And sometimes you have a player that you don't expect. So take Will Brody, for example, last season. He was in my side the entire season. When he started as a, the most speculative of mid-prices, 
did not see that he was going to become one of my keepers. That was kind of balanced out by the fact that other players like, I don't know, Rowan Marshall was one that I started with and traded out because he didn't have the role that he did later in the season. I think you can still aim for it. It might not be the exact same player at the end of the season, but I, I very much like aiming for it at the very least. So if you've got eight players based on that that are going to be on your field to begin with and at the end of the season, how many of those are going to be premiums to start off with? It's a good question. I, I currently don't have eight premiums in my side. You don't say. <laughs> I think you can afford eight premiums, but you would then have to go eight rookies. And we'll talk about why I'm not a fan of that later. Not all of my mid-prices do I think are necessarily people I'm going to keep all season, but some of them I think are going to be close enough. So Abby, Abby Mackay in my forward line for one. I can see her pushing for top five forwards, as I put on the forwards episode. I'd be pretty happy going into the mm. season to hold her all season. Nice. What about you, Liam? Across the mid-prices that I have in my team, I need at least half of them to hit to be able to be at a point where I'm confident that I can hit that 7 to 8 number. And I also know that I will make some mistakes with my mid-price selections. So it's all just about being very okay with those first two weeks, being about fixing up some of those mid-prices. Nice. I agree with all of that because I'm also not quite sure what exactly I'm going to do. Interestingly, strategic philosophy number two is around the type of team structure we want to go with. And I guess maybe the reason I'm not too sure about how many of my potential eight that are going to stay with me are premiums is because I am also have chopped and changed between the two extremes of the team structure options. So what we mean by team structure is there's kind of two main strategies that are both quite extreme in fantasy. There's guns and rookies and then there's mid-price madness. You're probably not going to follow either one of these in its entirety in your starting squad or the whole way through the season, but we're going to run through what each of these look like because you're going to be somewhere in the middle, and it's really about which direction you lean further to. So guns and rookies. John, did you want to talk us through this one? Yeah, no, happy to. Uh, so your guns and rookies is essentially trying to pick who's going to be the top five players on any given line and, and really picking those ones, the ones that you're not going to be safe top line players so I would take you know uh, your Emma Carney and your Ruby Schleicher in your back line Kiara Bowers in your midfield Jazz Garner in the forward line these are the types of players you would have there where you know we're reasonably confident at the very least that they're going to be the top of their line is is trying to prioritise starting with those players and then going rookies at the other end and that way you're getting exactly what you pay for you're going to have the best players on each line it's going to give you the best caption choices as well which is a very helpful thing the issue, I suppose, with the guns and rookies approach is that cash is king. And we've got so few trades to be spending. We really want players who are going to outscore their price. If you look at season six winner, Rez, he actually managed to improve his team 31% just over 10 rounds, like 31% in value. That's really a lot very That's quickly. Huge. If you want to be amongst the, you know, the top ranking coaches, you've got to get that value of your team up there as quick as possible. To kind of counter that negativity, I think that one spectre of the women's game, which is unique, is the reason why I think you could preference rookies in almost any other season is every year the rookies that come in have played more junior football than the rookie class of years prior, meaning that there are midfielders coming in now like Robottom and Ham who've played more football than someone like Tara Bohana, which is wild to think about. 
but Tara's played five years at a VFLW level, and then some of these juniors have been playing since they were eight or nine and have not had to stop at any point. So they're coming in as extremely experienced comparative to a lot of their peers, which means that they can consistently score. We saw what Charlie Robottom and Georgie Prasparkas could do last year, but then in seasons past, you look at you know an Ellie McKenzie going at a 68 in her first year, and then a Nina Morrison who was miles out of the blocks in her first year, scoring 80s in basically in her first eight to nine games. So you can, in most seasons, I would say preference going with more rookies because they are extremely talented and will continue to get better as more investment in the game means more improvement at junior level. True. I guess the one other thing that is a little bit risky with the the Guns and Rookies approach is that you're going to have, and like you said, if Rez's team went up 31% in value, the value has come off somewhere else. So you've got your rookies going up astronomically in their price over the 10 weeks. Who is losing that money to be able to accommodate for the rookies' growth? And it's, it, you know, it could come from a number of places. But when you've got these really expensive premiums, like all of those ones you rattled off before, Jono, there's a good chance that some of that value is coming off them. If you're going to have too many guns in your team, there's a risk that your team value there either plateaus or gets counteracted the the rookies are taking away from your premiums and you're kind of netting out the the only kind of slight caveat to this strategy of just pure guns and rooks is quite often you're not just looking for like the top of every line you're looking at those small bits of value that you might see at the top of that line so for me for example i'm currently running Anne hatchard as my m1 because i still see her as about five point unders what she could probably average given, and you know, we've discussed this at length, but she's got a very low score baked into that average and her price that figure from last season. So it's not necessarily that you're going to lose cash because you've just picked the top ones. I still think you just try and look for a little bit of value in the top of that line, but you're looking in a much smaller band than if you employ a more hybrid strategy. Liam, you said a phrase earlier today, which I, I really, really liked, and it was avoiding stagnant players. Even if you're going with the, the guns and rookies approach, I'll pull it back just a little bit from the extreme version of it, and I would look at any player that you think is going to improve on their average. That could be a gun going up, like you said, a Hatchard has got more potential, or it could be a rookie, but either way, if you're picking a premium, you still want to have value potential. And I think the key thing there is that even if you bring in your top-line players and they don't make you any additional cash, that's fine if you're never going to trade them out because... You know, a loss that you never actually sell is never a loss. It just sits there unrealized. Even if they do lose a little bit of cash, but they continue to push up their average, it really doesn't matter because you paid for them at a certain average, less than you paid for them at a certain price. Yeah, nice. So that kind of takes us on to our second option then, the almost the complete opposite to the Guns and Rookies, which is the mid-price madness. So this is the concept where instead of getting the, the top of the barrel and the bottom of the barrel and looking for value there, you just kind of go for your average price players. So somewhere uh, averaging, it, it kind of varies by line, but averaging about 50 points. This is a higher risk strategy, but potentially a high reward. Some of those midfield players are going to break out into the next bracket and have the potential to be heading towards the premium line. But if they don't, you've kind of paid for a fairly expensive average player and it makes it a little bit hard with what you're going to do next. Liam, I know you're not the biggest fan of this strategy. What do you see as some of the other cons? So I think the, the other con is there are always going to be rookies who can push their average up into the 50s. 
but you've paid an average in the high teens to low 20s when you bring them into your side. That's a massive amount of increase. And they don't even need to be particularly spectacular. Like we're just talking about players that sit in that middle band of fantasy scoring. If you can preference bringing in rookies who might do that, then you almost certainly should. I think the key one, for example, was was last year, Mel. You and I discussed bringing in Lucy McAvoy. We thought that she might come in and get some more midfield time. That never eventuated. And so you paid for her at a price of 51, and she ended up averaging less than that. That was just a risk that you took, whereas if you'd taken a rookie price player, if you'd taken Charlie Robottom instead, you would have got 30 points of upside and upside in value that McAvoy never had. Yeah, oh, Liam, you, you took my example there with Lucy McAvoy. She was one that uh, I was having a look at before this because I knew that I had in my season six some absolute classics of the cons of mid-price madness. It was really just which ones do I pick to talk about? But I did have a massive pro as well with Tani White. So she was a, a classic mid-price. She was priced at um, 49 at the start of season six, brought her into my team. She then went on to score 100-something in the first game. Uh, luckily for me, she got her average quite a few times in a row, but she, by round five, halfway through, she was up to a average of 65. So she's just gained a huge amount of cash and a huge amount of average points for me there. And I can then trade her out for someone in that, that next band. So that is definitely the, the plus side if you can get it right with mid-price madness, but it's called madness for a reason. It's a, it's a bit of a gamble and almost for every one you get right, you're going to get one wrong as well. Yeah, I think I think actually the biggest um, example of this last year was Gabby O'Sullivan, who took her average of 47 all the way up to 80 to bring her to the top of her line. Yeah, to my mind, it's really what kind of a, a risk do you enjoy having in your fantasy team? If you're a person who loves the high risk, then by all means, go down the mid-priced route and, and pick a few players that you think are pretty speculative but might have breakout seasons. I don't know, some people don't really enjoy that. They kind of beat themselves up a little bit if they get a, a pick wrong. And if that's the case, th- this game is about fun at the end of the day. So I, I just encourage people to go to the strategy yeah. that kind of suits the way they, they like playing the game. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was quite stressful, um, I will admit, for parts of it. But the other nice thing, and we might talk about this a little bit later, is with the mid-price madness, you really get a bit of a point of difference option because there are a lot of mid-prices to choose from, and especially now with four expansion clubs coming in. If you pick that right one and they're a lowly owned player and then they skyrocket up to the next bracket, you might have just cemented yourself on an unstoppable lead that other people are going to struggle to catch up yeah, with. And this is me saying it again. Abby Mackay, 1.6% owned. <laughs> At the Get moment. On. I cannot be screaming this any louder. And we've only got three days to go. I am so confident. Mate, she's going to be 10% owned by the time this I hope done. so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> And this kind of speaks to to kind of the midpoint between these two things is for every Abby Mackay who's 1.6% owned and looks to have the role, we also have Maddie Guerin who is 1.1% owned and all of the same positives. Excellent preseason, looks to have cemented a mid-roll after every single person left Carlton in the off-season. <laughs> all of those same positives exist for Maddie Guerin. And we had the same debate last year. We all three of us and Will sat and we tried to chat about, are we going to take Livia Vesely or are we going to take Tani White? Both of them are going to get more midfield time, Ty Smith out, and with Georgia Patrikios sitting out the season. And we both took risks. Jono and I made the wrong choice. We took Liv Vesely, she played two games and she was gone. We had to trade her out, that was a loss. 
You took Tani White, she knocked in 100, and I was forever disappointed watching the first game of the season last year. <laughs> and listening to me talk about it for the next five weeks. Oh, yeah. Don't, I, I don't think we needed to rehash that. Thank you very much. Yeah, and that, that takes me, I suppose, to the other piece of advice I want to give here, which is watch the footy. The big difference last year was that we hadn't watched the St Kilda practice match. I don't even know if there was one. I don't recall one happening. But for this preseason, I've watched the Carlton Melbourne game. I know the difference between Abby Mackay and Matty Guerin from a, just how they look on the footy field. I think they're both going to be good picks. Having watched them both, I can feel a lot more comfortable in, in choosing one over the other. At, at the very least, that's it gives you a bit more confidence than just looking at stats on a page because stats really don't tell you much. Another downside of going pure guns and rooks is that most of the time we're trying to upgrade rookies to mid-prices who have role changes mid-season. It is substantially more difficult to recognize a role change in the middle of the year and and have that role change come with some job security versus ones that have been locked in during the preseason. You're going pure guns and rooks. You're trying to upgrade to players that are still mid-priced or maybe you've seen one game where the role has changed. That comes with, I would say, even more risk. Because then if you get it wrong, you've just upgraded to a stagnant Yeah, player. absolutely, Liam. Completely agree with what you said there. Now that we're on this role is everything strategic pillar, which we've seamlessly transitioned into, I think there's a good question here, which is, would you just take a, a new role just because they're in the midfield? Or are we looking at something more specific than that? I would say that that comes more down to price. So if you're going to pick someone who is rookie-priced, then you can probably afford to just pick them because they're going to be in the midfield. If they're very, very lowly priced, all they need to do is probably get up you up to a 50, which is quite easy to do when you're around the ball all the time. It's when you start paying up more for players, you need to start seeing more of a fantasy-relevant game versus just like, they're in the mids, pick them, easy. That's a really good example. And if I can just put some players that line up with that approach. In our back line, there's a couple players in my team at the moment, both of who are looking at midfield time. One is the rookie-priced Bridie Kennedy, and she was getting great midfield minutes for Sydney. She's one that I kind of put in that category of, I don't think she has a hugely fantasy-relevant game about her in that practice match. But because, as you say, she's just going to be in the midfield, there's points abound, I'm pretty comfortable starting with that. A little bit more expensive than her, though, is Louise Stevenson. She, at the Hawks, was playing in the midfield again, but because she's coming in priced around that 38 mark, I think it was about 64K, I really did want to see that fantasy relevance about her game. And I was very, very happy when I started seeing her tackling. She was taking marks. She was finding a lot of the ball around the ground. To that point, though, it doesn't just need to be defenders that play through the midfield. Like, key defenders can still be quite a fantasy relevant role. But I think one of my big learnings from Season 6 was... You need to consider quite a number of things and pretty much the only way to get those is by watching the games. And my example here was, I mentioned it a bit in the Carlton pod, but between Gab Pound and Karen Peterson, both of them fenders for Carlton. Carlton weren't expecting to do very well, so you would expect the ball to be back there quite a bit. They're both quite experienced up the top of the defenders in terms of averages and, and price. But how do you know which one to pick? It really comes down to who's getting kick-ins, who's playing uh, like a bit more of a lockdown role, who's moving around a bit more, who does the ball go to when it gets down there. They look on paper fairly similar, but one of them is the the obvious pick, uh, not the one that I made, of course, but <laughs> knowing if you're going to pick a defender, are they in an average team? Who else do they have in the team around them? All of those kind of For things. For defenders in particular, one of the key things you need to take in consideration is their size. The taller they are, the more likely mm-hmm. they will be Karen Peterson or, I think more importantly, Katie Lynched 
into a fantasy irrelevant role going from 70s to 17 the taller you are the more likely you are to get put in a key position meaning that your fantasy relevance will be decreased whereas a gab pound the long sleeve seagull is not very tall takes all the kick-ins and isn't asked to play a lockdown defender role on a key forward yeah, it's one that I'm looking at pretty closely. Since we recorded the Defenders pod, we've seen that Maddie McMahon has gone uh, onto the inactive list at Geelong, and she was playing yeah. a fantastic intercepting role last season. So one thing we saw today was apparently Claudia Gunjaka is going to go back and help out in that defense. And the question is, which of her or Meg McDonald is going to be the lockdown defender, and which one of them is going to be the intercept defender? Because last season, Meg McDonald dropped her average by about 20 points playing that lockdown role. But if she moves into that, that relevant role again, then I think that's a good chance for a, a bit of a breakout. Well, not a breakout, a... A, a re-breakout. Yeah. <laughs> just, just the sort of thing that we're looking for there. I'm assuming that the defender with experience is the one who's going to get that intercept room role. So fingers crossed there. I think the word you were looking for there was a comeback. <laughs> Not a ring breakout. (laughs) This is a real uh, turning of the tables here because Mel's very good with numbers. Not always necessarily phrases, but she's really nailed it this evening. (laughs) I would say, I kind of think this hits upon a point that uh, Jono made, I reckon maybe like four years ago when I started playing AFL Fantasy, which is don't bring someone in unless you've watched them the week before. Whenever possible, try and watch a player before you bring them into your side. I think that applies the same to the practice games. If you have got the chance, kind of try and find some of the practice games to watch online. If you're unsure on a player, like use your eyes. You will kind of be able to see what role they have and whether or not they got like six or seven very, very lucky tackles or they're a really great contested player or they're a permanent link in the chain versus someone who just got very lucky with some free kicks. Look, I think we've done a very good job so far covering off all of the things people need to be thinking about. The last one, which is not so relevant to AFLW fantasy as a whole, but is particularly relevant to Season 7 and the dilemma that we're facing with all of these new players, is what does having four expansion clubs and a hell of a lot of new expansion players in the game do for the dynamics? Liam, you're a Bombers supporter. What does having all these new Bombers players in the game change? So I think there are a lot of things that we're going to have to navigate this year. The main one is that obviously there is a a maximum value set for all the players throughout the season, and then that was going to radically shift given the massive overpopulation of rookie price players coming in this year. That means that you're going to need to be quite selective about going up to the primos because if there's any risk you're going to trade them out they are going to have lost most likely a lot of value but then that also flows through to your mid price players a mid price player who's only going to take the average up from a 48 to a 58 isn't probably going to earn you enough cash to justify bringing them in to be effectively a stepping stone to use the example from earlier turning tani white into jazz garner only happened because Tani White can go from 50 to a mid-60s, which means you could put two rookies worth of cash on top, take her to a primo at the top of their line, who's had a couple of down games and is now going to be an elite player. I, I agree that you don't necessarily need to spend up on players with a, the high enough ceiling because we do have a lot of rookies. Is it worth paying up for someone like Montana Ham on the basis of job security? I've currently got Montana Ham in my side for uh, for the same reason that you've just said, which is she has incredible role security. 
But it also goes back to a point that we were discussing earlier and a point that one of the podcasters I listened to for AFLM talked about, which is really nailing down the best midfielder in a side. Don't pick players who have role insecurity if you're kind of like, which of these five players is going to play in the midfield each week? Who's going to be the best? Who's going to be on the wing? Montana Ham has that role locked down. Jono, also a supporter of an expansion club. Any thoughts from you? Yeah, I think we are probably going to see a lot of experimentation in the midfields of these expansion sides. I'm hoping, based on the practice games, a lot of the teams were running very small units. So the Hawks, for example only had five players total go through their midfield who wasn't ruck-listed. Jazz Fleming and Tamara Smith uh, and Louise Stevenson have very, very solid roles in there. My question is, the Hawks, as an expansion side, aren't going to do too well this season. So after three rounds of very tough matches, is Beck Goddard going to look to change it up and, and just see what other players can do? I would expect that to happen, and that's, that's sort of the risk that I see. Yeah. It's going to be really tricky with the expansion clubs. I think another thing that we need to consider about the expansion season is the fact that with these teams coming in, not having a lot of experience, still working out how they're going to be as a side, we're probably going to see a lot more blowouts. And that's going to be really interesting to see what happens to our sides. We could see see very large margins. So in the practice games, we saw Hawthorne got beaten by about six goals and then another six goals for uh, the Collingwood-Sydney game. And that's that's during a trial match where Collingwood was rotating their midfield around. Richmond was trying some things out. In the regular season, if you put Hawthorne up against, uh, say, the reigning premiers in Adelaide, that could be a very big margin. It comes into something that we spoke a bit about in the forwards as well, which is probably not picking forwards from the expansion teams unless you're particularly certain about them in the risk that the ball never really goes up there. But I am just hopeful that four new expansion clubs means that there is a blowout bigger than Frio's loss last season. (laughs) That would be nice. I think the bigger problem as well is that one of the big fantasy roles that we kind of noticed last year was the interceptor role. If you're going up a run on a run against some expansion sides, you're probably not going to be intercepting that many balls. You're probably going to live in your forward line. So that might mean, to kind of use the example of Katie Lynch, she doesn't isn't able to hit a ceiling score because the ball doesn't leave the Western Bulldogs forward 50. Yep, absolutely. So basically, the takeaway here is you need to be doing more watching, more listening, and more research. (laughs) Don't make a podcast, because that will suck away all of your spare time, but spend as much spare time as humanly possible trying to figure things out. Ah, yes, yes. No, that's that's what I can blame my AFL men's fantasy season on right there. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I appreciate that out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think there's a direct correlation between the 18 clubs in 18-day series and you getting stuck with some just super unfortunate (laughs) bad luck in AFLM. So just to recap, some of the things to be thinking about when you go into making your starting side as well as for the rest of the season. Consider that you've only got 30 trades and that you're going to be accounting for injuries and corrections with those, so you want to be pretty confident in your starting side. Consider which end of the spectrum you're leaning towards, be it guns and rookies or the slightly high-risk, high-reward, mid-price madness end. Really considering the role of the players and which team they're playing in and all of the dynamics that fit around that, not just who the player is themselves and look out for these fascinating expansion dynamics and really make the most of them because it's not going to happen again now that we've got 18 clubs. So ride that wave. Some people have written in asking us some questions, which now feels like the perfect time to go ahead and discuss given that the game starts so soon. I might read some of these out. We've got one here from Jacob. 
I currently have six premiums, two mid prices, and eight rookies on my field. How does this compare to your team structure? Jomo. I think I've got probably less players that I would call out and out premiums. I've probably only got the five in my side that I would I would give that label. And that's that's being generous to someone like an Alice Parker. I, I've probably gone a little bit hotter on, on some of the mid prices. I've got another five. Uh, and then the rest, the best being rookies. Liam? Yeah, I'm running a pretty similar structure. I've got only five premiums, and that's also including Celine Moody, who I see as R2. R2? R1. Who's <laughs> your R1? No, no, no. I see her as the R2, as in the second highest averaging ruck. Oh, gosh. I was like, don't put Celine Moody on your bench. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm running a double moody ruck lineup. <laughs> <laughs> okay, glad we clarified. I've, I've definitely gone five or six premiums, probably a couple more. Oh, I don't really know. I, I change it every 10 minutes. What Jacob suggested sounds about right to me. That leads in nicely to a second question we have here from Finn. Do you have a rookie heavy line? Well, yes. At the moment, I'm running three rookies on field in my forward line. Um, and that's because I think that there are two rookies who are non-basement price who have some really great roles in Paige Scott and Ella Roberts. I don't think necessarily there's any reason that you can't go rookie heavy in one line. It's more just about how confident you are in the mid-prices and the primos in that level. I think the key thing is not necessarily to look at your team as, as four different lines, but as one whole. I think it's fine to run more rookies in the forward line where there is such great depth. The only reason that I would look at each line individually is to make sure that you've got backup options if things fall apart. Because as you say, Liam, everything will fall apart at some point. In in defense, for example, we've got a lot less rookie options. So there was a time there where I was running, I think, three rookies on my field. I was looking at it going, geez, if I've got four of the rookies here in defense, if you include the bench, if any of them fail, I'm almost not going to have anyone to go to. Like there's not going to be playing rookies out there. And that means that I'm, I'm going to be stuck yeah. in my cash generation. I'm going to be stuck in potentially fielding a donut or I'll have to restructure my team to find a new way to get someone on field. It just throws up challenges that I don't want to see in the middle of the season. So that's kind of the only flag I would have there is is not take all of the relevant rookies in one line. You want to have someone there that you can fall back on in a worst case scenario. Yeah, I did see that playing out for me last season. Obviously last season, first fantasy season, so it was learning a lot. But Rachel Carnes was great at the beginning and then she kind of maxed out not that much higher than she started as as a rookie pricer. But I just couldn't really do anything with it because there weren't enough trades for me to get her out and she just kind of sat on my bench without me being able to do anything about it, which was very frustrating. Unless I was going to downgrade to another rookie. All the rookies by that stage were probably more expensive than her. So, I suppose for context, I'll just add in that right now I'm not currently running any more than two rookies on any line. I like the safety of saying, you know, if Lauren Zagetti fails, you just move it to Amy Whelan. Or if Paige Clark goes down, Hannah Ewings is there. If Ella Roberts fails, you've got Riley Wilcox. Like, there's plenty of options. Yeah. That leads us into another great question, which is, given all of the rotation of the rookies and the risk of some of them failing, is it safer to just pick mid-prices? Yeah. Um, great question here from uh, from Sanch, a, a pretty gun AFLM coach and uh, unfortunately just as sad as Jono uh, at time of recording. I think that's a I think that's a really great question, uh, if only because it's actually hilarious to think that mid prices might actually be safer. Yeah. 
I would actually say that, yes, we can definitely trust the rookies, but it's not as cut and dry as in previous years. I still think I fall back on the idea that so many of these rookies that come in have played an entire career of junior football and come in with a substantial amount of experience. I think the trusting of the rookies gets a bit dicey. Someone like Sydney. Sydney have about 40 besquillion options to run through their midfield. You wouldn't want to be paying a substantial amount of cash for a rookie who looks like they might be coming to the midfield, but then may just transition immediately out. My one piece of advice here, which probably sounds very obvious, but I'm just going to say it anyway, is with your rookies, you just want to make sure that they're playing in round one because you don't have enough weeks for them to come in later. But also, when those teams get released ahead of lockout, just be double-checking to make sure that the rookies that are on your field or on your team even are actually listed to play because having a non-playing rookie in round one is just setting yourself up for failure. It's nice that we can trust rookies from expansion sides a little bit more this season. There's a few players that I would be a little worried, like if Jess Waterhouse gets named for Adelaide, that's a hard forward line to break into. She She's a fantastic player and she might hold her spot, but I, I wouldn't have a lot of confidence for someone breaking into Adelaide or North Melbourne or, or Melbourne. There, there's just a lot of depth in those sides. So here's an interesting one. A question from Michael around how much cash. So I'll read it out. Question from Michael. Last season, we all had to make sacrifices to bring in underpriced players we missed after round one. With one or two rookie sideways and one or two upgrades, how much cash are you planning on holding for these trades? So how much cash are you planning on not spending on your starting team to then use for adjustments or corrections in round two? I currently have $400, so (laughs) (laughs) not a lot. (laughs) However, last season I had about 25 grand and that was substantial, especially given that the salary cap was like half what it is now. It was like a 700 grand salary cap because I was very uncertain and not knowing what I was doing. And I was incredibly thankful. I think of any of the moves that I made in season six that got me to top 100. It was saving money after round one to be able to fix up all of my terrible mistakes that I had made. What about you guys? How much cash are you leaving? Or how much cash would you recommend leaving? Well, I'm uh, I'm rolling around in cash compared to you, Mel. I've got double. I've got 800 bucks <laughs> at oh, the moment. Don't spend it all at once. <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm fully maxed out. I think that you can. You should only be holding cash if you are really, really uncertain. Every dollar that you leave sitting in the kitty at the start of the season is a point, effectively, that you're leaving off the field. Yeah. Look, I I can see a few situations. One, as you say, is if you're uncertain and you want a week to watch to decide between a few mid prices. You grab the rookies that are going to go up in cash, and then you jump in later. But at the same time, maybe you're just looking at these are the players I think are going to jump the most, go from that sort of mid-tier player to threatening to be a top five player in their line. And you you can afford to save a little bit. I don't think there's any need necessarily. Even if you do need to make some sideways trades after round one and round two, realistically, you're going to be able to find ways to get the players in that you want and to get rid of the players that you don't want. There's there's always inventive ways to trade about. So I, I wouldn't be worried too much about saving cash for it. I've got about 15K in the kitty at the moment. Something that I've been considering doing is taking some of these bench players that I've got and just upgrade them a little bit, just to give myself a little bit more certainty in those players. So speaking of spending up, here's a question for you, Jono. Sanch, another question from Sanch. How aggressive should I be with trading out premiums during the season? What's your one piece of advice that you gave me last season? (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, a one-week injury is a trade, absolutely, without fail. In the men's game, I'm very big on holding one-week injuries, but it's only 10 rounds. You've got to be as aggressive as you can, really. The the only situation that I wouldn't trade, I suppose, is if you are already planning on doing an upgrade with your other trades, and you wouldn't be able to do that. So because we've got the, the one-up, one-down, and one sideways is a potential option, so... You know, if you haven't got any issues with that week, that third trade really adds a lot of flexibility to what you can do. But if you need the two trades down to go one up, then you're going to be in the same position realistically, whether you trade or not. And then the following week, you'll have that extra premium when they come back from injury. So That's very interesting. That's not where I thought you were going to go with that answer. Because I read that question and my immediate response was the thing that you've said to me many times, which is don't F with your premiums <laughs> just because they have a slightly down week. Don't trade them out because they're premiums for a reason. They will bounce back. Yes, a one-week injury or suspension is a very big difference. I, I very much believe in backing your premiums in. Last season, I traded out Ebony Marinoff after a couple rounds to, I mean, albeit another good pickup in Anne Hatchard, but Ebony Marinoff was one of the best players last year. It was a waste of a trade. I should have just backed her in. It would have been, it would have been great. So... I think you only get aggressive if you see a role change to a premium. So if I saw Jazz Garner sitting permanently forward, I'd have to trade her out. The other thing is that the fixture is very up and down. If you play at a really tough team, odds are that the following week you're going to play an expansion side. I don't think any of the teams have an extended run of difficult matches. So one last question, a bit of a player-specific one here. Wayne has written in saying, is Blackburn a good point of difference as a premium? Her at M3 with Patricius at M4. Bulldogs have the sixth easiest draw. <laughs> He's really had a look at that there. After four expansion sides in the Eagles. So should he go Blackburn as a point of difference or should he spend a little bit less for one of the Press Barker sisters? I think he's touched on an interesting point here, which is he's picked Ellie Blackburn as a point of difference is, is one of the call-outs in the question. I generally, as a rule, don't like to start a player purely because of their uniqueness. I think you should only be looking at a player as a point of difference or a unique when it comes towards the end of the season. When you're starting your side, there's so much of the season ahead of you. Don't worry about being unique. Just make sure you get the player that you think is going to score the most. I do like Ellie Blackburn as a player. I think if you go back to the Bulldogs pod, she generally seems to start the season quite fast. With four expansion sides and the Eagles in the the opening few rounds, I like that a lot. So I'd be happy to do that. And then I guess that's another point there is how much are we going to be fixture chasing this season when teams are coming into big runs against expansion sides? I fully agree with you on this one. At the time when I'm thinking about pods, uh, when you're considering trading in two players that you kind of know are locked into a certain scoring style, example might be, uh, I don't know, you're trying to trade in a defender and you're going, well, I really like what Bianca Jacobson is doing. Or do I trade in a Sarah Veria? She looks to have gone in at a, you know, a 64 average. One player is owned at 1%, the other one is owned at 8 I think you can, at that point, start considering whether or not they're a point of difference. But at this time of the year, you're just trying to nail down a side that has the right value increases. No, I think that's uh, you've said that well. Thanks for everyone that wrote in with some questions. We do love getting these. It's a lot of fun to discuss. One final thing before we wrap up the strategy episode. Final takeaways. One piece of advice that you can give to the listeners before they head into the season in a couple of days. Jono, what's your key takeaway? Put me on the spot here. I, I think my one thing with your starting side is that you want to be happy with every player in your squad. 
I, I see so many people, they get to, you know, round two or three and they're so upset already with their whole season because they felt like they wanted to do a particular structure and they've cornered themselves into picking a player that they didn't think was going to go well and then they didn't go well. And, and now they're just upset because their season's ruined. There's always a way to restructure your squad to find something that you're happy with. Just keep fiddling with it un- until you get there. I fully agree. Don't pick players that you don't want to watch. My key piece of advice is actually watch the players before you bring them into your side. And if you're going to be forced to watch them and you don't like the way that they play or they play on a side, play for a side you really don't like, you don't need to bring them in. Yeah, actually, on your point, Jono, you had mentioned to me uh, a little while ago, if there's, if you're having to like squeeze in a player or you've only got so much money left and you don't like any of the options, don't just pick a player that you don't like. Just start again, um, especially with your starting side because you'll probably come to regret that player. And I thought that was a really wise piece of advice, uh, which I have now taken aboard many times. <laughs> I guess my my final takeaway fits into both of your, your guys's, which is if it all turns to crap, you can always make more trades next week, which I find reassuring when I get very stressed over how my team is doing. But really to help along with that is have backup plans, keep your notes, I kept a lot of notes on like which players I was considering, why I brought them in, why I didn't in the end, a lot of their price stats and stuff as we went through the game because a lot of that information wasn't available at the time. When you're talking about so many players every single week, it really helped organise my brain of which players I was considering at which price ranges when I went back to look at it. Yeah, I I really like this one. I I feel like people, when things turn to crap for only their team and no one else's, there's this real negative sentiment about it and they're looking at it from, you know, oh, woe is me. What's actually happened, particularly when it happens at the start of the season, is that you're now in a situation where no one else is and you can make trades that no one else is looking at. Like, if anything, it's an opportunity not to do what you know the common advice is. And if the common player goes down, you've avoided that player because you've been looking at the next thing which only suited your team. So, oh, I can't wait. I really can't wait for this to start. Um, only a few more days. Thanks so much, guys, for this strategy chat. I had a lot of fun, and I hope our listeners enjoy listening to us ramble on about all the different strategic plays as well. We've been Free Kick, the Fantasy W Pod. You can find us on Insta, Facebook, and Twitter at FreeKickWPod. You can find me, Mel, on Insta and Twitter as HiMelD. You can find me on Twitter at LMTom1. And I'm on Twitter at Odds and Stephen. Keep listening because we'll have more weekly episodes coming out as the season goes through where we talk all things of our fantasy trades and how the last weekend of games went. So we'll chat to you when the season starts. Good luck. Bye. Thanks, everyone.